Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Ah. Ladies and gentlemen, live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, nestled in our secret bunker. Somewhere in the Los Angeles area where we don't have 97% pure cocaine, I'm sad to say. We don't even have 35%. We, we don't have any at all. But we do have something even more intoxicating. True Crime Uncensored. Produced by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. I am, let me check my credentials. Please mm. check them. Oh, oh. Legendary Pearl Bear. The man in the Howard Lapidus chair. Is H.G. Wells. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody there. I don't know where Howard is. He got waylaid, lucky man. Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact checker, has no facts to check today, did that you? That is correct. No, he's wandering in a morass of ignorance. Um, what else is new? <laughs> All sorts of fun stuff. Our guest today, on the way, the way in today, uh, Barbara Cream said to me, Who's your guest today? And I said, Owen Band. And she said, do you have any of their albums? <laughs> hey, da bump I said, it's a human being. We, in fact, he's actually ready. He's on the phone. He's so excited to be here, he can hardly contain himself. I'd like to thank Daniel. Hi, Hi there, Owen. Good to have you on the show. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. Well, Daniel uh, Dennis, who I have great pity for, <laughs> and an equal amount of admiration, uh, suggested you and I looked you up and I said oh this has got to be too cool I'm very happy to have oh, you here thank you there's so many things to talk about I've been reading the book Hotel Scarface which you didn't write but you certainly are in it and if I was an envious man Owen <laughs> you were in Miami for what I would call probably the most enjoyable time to be in Miami uh there were good moments. There were bad moments. Uh, it was certainly a, a lively time to be in Miami. Uh, I would really appreciate it if you take time to uh, tell our vast and well-educated and semi-literate audience what the hell was going on in Miami then and how did you wind up in it? All right. Uh, as probably most people know, uh, the late 70s and 80s uh, was a... Uh, pretty unique period in the history of Miami. It was the uh, period of the importation and trafficking of large amounts of cocaine, mm. uh, which had a lot to do with the building up of the city. Uh, this was following the uh, Venezuelan oil boom that led to uh, resurgence of downtown Miami, and then the next major influx of money came with the uh, importation of cocaine. Uh, a lot having to do after the Mario boat lift in 1971. Well, I saw the movie Scarface. is probably everyone on the planet except maybe some poor people somewhere who don't have a DVD player. <laughs> Missed out on, on that movie. But there's a scene in the film where guys are carrying uh, giant bags after bag after bag of money into the bank to be laundered, which I, I thought was just wonderful. Uh, was that anywhere near realistic? Uh, you know, there was 
certainly a serious influx of cash. I mean, the Fed had more cash coming into Miami uh, than any other Fed in the country at the time. One night, I was going out with a couple friends of mine, one of the guys from Ariel. Uh, we were going to a strip club, and he realized he didn't have any money, and there really weren't any ATMs around. So we stopped by a house down by Dadeland Mall, walked in, and there was about $35 million oh. small bills. Jesus. Uh, yeah, I wish I would have kept the address afterwards. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, can you go back now? <laughs> if I, if, there were, if H.G. Wells could come up with a time machine, I think that's exactly where we'd go right now. Well, what was the $37 million doing, just kind of sitting there? Um, it was going to be sent back to Columbia. I don't think much of it was really meant to be laundered here. And it was just a way station. It was a house in the suburbs, uh, you know, with counter, with uh, cameras, extra security on the door. But... Uh, not what you'd really expect. Uh, there was nobody there at the time, no guards, no dogs. Uh, you know, I just think there was just so much cash in so many stash houses. Uh, the people that had the money really didn't think much about it. Uh, how much did your friend borrow? Uh, I think he took about $5,000. We went to strip club and we came out at five in the morning broke. So uh, we had a good time. <laughs> you had a good time. Well, that's a lot of lap dancing for $5,000. Uh, yeah, quite a few lap dances, if I remember. <laughs> $5,000 worth of lap dances. Do you know that uh, lap dances and strip clubs were invented in Miami? Did you know that? I didn't know that, but uh, I How is it that you know that? <laughs> oh, Howard Lapidus had just joined us. He's yeah. manager of the Star. How are you today? Oh, Howard. It's always a pleasure. I'm just wondering how... Burl knows so much about the... Because uh... we had a guy on the show that told us all about it. <laughs> he must have been gone. Well, actually, uh, Deep Throat was filmed out of Miami, and Linda Loveless uh, was known to hang out at the mutiny also back then. So this is what that was the, the, the main hotel that you uh, hung out at? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the Babylon Club in Scarface was taken to be the mutiny hotel uh, when... Uh, screenwriter Oliver Stone was in Miami. He stayed at the Mutineon, uh, I think, based a lot of the uh, book on the hotel. Well, I'll tell you, I've been reading this book, Hotel Scarface, and mostly the, the, the passages you marked, you, I mean, you you could have had a fine career instead of being a literary agent. <laughs> oh, you know, Howard, a nice Jewish boy doesn't start off in life thinking he was going to be in the cocaine trade. You know, it's doctor, lawyer, it wasn't doctor, lawyer, or cocaine dealer. You know, so, that's interesting uh, considering how many Jewish cocaine dealers I know. Six. <laughs> you know, there were, you know, honestly, there were quite a few. There was a guy named Larry Levin who was in Pennsylvania who was a pretty large distributor. Uh, he actually was a dentist, but he got in the cocaine trade. Well, that makes how, sense. How did he make that, that switch? And, uh, yeah, just that the, the business was pervasive. It was so easy to make money. Uh, if you knew people, uh, it, it was very seductive. Uh, when I, well, first time I had flown up after college, uh, to see some friends that had gone to Columbia University, they had asked me if I would bring up a couple ounces. And I had asked some of my friends if I can buy some cocaine, and they just said, 
you know, there are 300 kilos in the other room. Why don't you just break off a piece off a key and take it with you? And, uh, you know, the the ounce price to me would have been about 300 an ounce, and it was going for 2100 an ounce in Manhattan. Uh, cut in half, that was about $4,200 profit. Wow. So, you know, uh, well, it was than, a lot it's easier. It's better than, than selling structural steel, I'll tell you that. Yeah. Uh, it's nice having a product that everybody wanted. Didn't really take much of a sales pitch. Now, now weren't you uh, scheduled to go, like, to law school or something reliable like that? Well, I had graduated summa cum laude at Boston University. I had worked for the governor of Florida, Bob Graham. Uh, I had near-perfect law boards. I only applied to Harvard Law School, uh, which was kind of stupid of me at the time, but I was assured that uh, they would take uh, very good consideration of my uh, application. I, and I was waitlisted. Mm. And, uh, you know, I, my parents never went to college. They weren't aware of how the system really worked. I should have applied to a few safe schools. And I was on the debate team and the captain, uh, or the, uh, person that ran the team was friends with Professor Lawrence Tribe at Harvard. Uh, it was his first year there. He was Obama's, uh, mentor and, uh, Justice Kagan and Sotomayor's mentor. Uh, she had sent me to meet with uh, Professor Tribe to find out what was going on with my application, and he basically said to me, he goes, Owen, you're a bright, middle-class Jewish guy uh, with great boards and uh, 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 undergraduate average, but he goes, you know, you're just like one in many that, you know, we're not taking this year. Oh. I was crushed. I was crushed. I, uh, I had worked. You know, hard for four years with one goal in mind, and when that didn't happen, uh, I had a little bit of a nervous breakdown. I went back to Miami. I had Crohn's disease. I had a flare, and I worried where I was going to do to support myself at that point. Well, and that was you. You hit a real low point. It was probably, you know, I I say it was probably the lowest point in my life uh, because, you know, I was I was taught to believe that if you worked hard and kept your nose to the grindstone. Uh, anything was possible. That was the idea of the American dream. And when, you know, Professor Drive broke it down for me that, well, you know, 5,000 applications for 500 places, and we take so many alumni kids, and geographical diversity, we're taking people from other Ivy schools, I really had a shot at about maybe 18 out of 500 seats. And uh, he told me they really didn't look at Boston University as a great school, so that was probably worked against me also. And uh, that's what happened. So uh, having a breakdown over this, which is perfectly understandable, and in Crohn's disease, which is really crappy, uh, how did you wind up doing what you did? All right, I got back to Miami, and uh, for four months I was living at my parents' house and just hanging out, uh, laying by a neighbor's pool. And they said, look, you know, and if you want to reapply next year, uh, go ahead and reapply, but you can't lay around the house for a year. You have to go out and get a job. So uh, I would look at the back of a matchbook and said, become a bartender. So I spent $120 and became a professional mixologist. Mm. Uh, the second club I worked for was called Club Alexandre, which was one of the first big Cuban discos. 
Uh, one of the owners was Andy Garcia's older brother, Renee. Some other people, uh, two sons of former presidents from Cuba. And I started working at bar. Yeah. And I got to know the clientele pretty well. And one day, some guy named Ramon comes up to me and says, Hey, you want to make a little extra money? And I'm laughing. I said, what do I have to do, Ramon? He goes, well, you take a little boat ride with Miguelito and uh, Juan, and I'll give you $25,000 tomorrow. And I laughed. You know, I had just started a MFA program at uh, Florida National University. I was looking for some Hemingway-esque style adventures. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I decided to go for it. So you so went for the little boat ride. Yeah, I went for a legal boat ride. I was, pro- I was, you know, glad I had an extra pair of underwear along the way. Uh, and it really wasn't that hard. I mean, you know, I was, I had an initial rush of adrenaline when this was going on. And, uh, you know, I thought this would be a one-time affair and other offers started coming in. And, well, wait, 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 go back. What kind of affair was this? All we know is you're going for a little boat ride. What does that mean? Well, all right, we we had taken, uh, we were in a 38-foot scarab open fisherman. We left the Miami Marina about 2 in the morning, went out towards the Gulf Stream uh, with six other boats. We helped to unload a freighter full of marijuana at the time and uh, some steel suitcases, which I assume probably was cocaine, most of the uh, people back then that I knew were uh, pot importers. And, uh, you know, came in the next day. I I, I met up uh, with Ramon. He gave me a manila envelope with uh, close to $25,000 in it. That's a nice, nice work. Hang on, close to, so he shorted you a couple bucks? <laughs> no, he thought I was in 24. Well, uh, <laughs> I don't even know if I really had counted it back then. It was uh, I stuck it under the floorboard of my car and uh, left and... Uh, you know, uh, I think I was still gun-shy about reapplying to law school. And within two or three months, other opportunities arose for the people I met at the club. And, uh, you know, before I knew it, one of the owners came up to me and says, oh, and you have to decide which side of the bar do you want to be on. Do you want to be a customer? Do you want to work for a living? And uh, kind of at that point, I was uh, seduced into the lifestyle. Uh, the club that I had worked at, Alexandria, was actually raided a few months later and was closed down for money laundering, a case called Operation of Black Tuna. And I wound up going over to the mutiny uh, because some of the waitresses from my club went to work there. Uh, and then I met this guy named Bernie. And, uh, Uh-oh, well, you meet a guy named Bernie, you got to watch out. Yeah, uh... Bernie was an interesting guy. He was about 20 years older than me. He was uh, he was uh, one of the intelligence officers for the Bay of Pigs. He was trained by the CIA. Uh, he was captured. He was the last person that Kennedy got out. Uh, later on, uh, Bernie had actually uh, been on the CIA payroll, working at the Jim in for Jim Garrison in the investigation, and he was funneling information back uh, to the CIA. Uh, Bernie had, was dragged in front of the House Committee on Assassinations. Uh, both the CIA and the FBI gave him immunity where he didn't have to talk about anything that happened from 1961 on. Oh, that's a good deal. Yep. 
And, you know, he liked me. Was he involved with Air America? What's the question? Was he involved with Air America? You know, he wasn't. I had the first trip I had flown to Columbia. One of the pilots uh, was with Air America and actually before that flew for the CIA in the Belgium and Congo. Uh, you had, you know, one thing about Miami was there was a flight school called Baker School of Aviation. It was right down by the airport. And people actually went there to learn how to be drug pilots. Oh. So you had you had people like, you know, Barry Shields and other people that had previous uh, flying experience. Uh, but, I mean, there was a whole industry of producing pilots uh, back then with just one purpose in mind. You know, it's amazing. We had on the show uh, several years ago, a woman who wrote the book about him, about him, I believe, Buccaneer, talked about flying over San Diego. I mean, no flight plan, no, you know, no, nothing official. Could fly low, could fly high. No one bothered him at all. It was like he was invisible. And he's, you know, flying in plain sight. It's, it's strange. Well, you know, I, I had flown that time to, uh, we went down, we flew outside of Medellin. We flew from the Yopalaca Airport, which was a big transit hub uh, for cocaine at the time. Barry Seal used to use that particular airport. And uh, it was kind of like my boat ride. Someone had come up to me. A friend actually approached me and said, look, we need somebody else to fly with us uh, tomorrow. We're going to Medellin. And uh, I had never thought about doing that. And I said, well, I'll do it once. You know, the money was right. And the uh, first thing that happened when, when I got on the uh, plane, uh, they handed me a Mac 11 with a silencer and said, well, you're the security guy for the flight. Oh, you know, nice. I, I didn't even know where the safety of the gun was. I was afraid, you know, I was going to drop it and shoot myself. And uh, flew down to Columbia, uh, brought back just under a half a ton worth of cocaine, and uh, flew in to uh, around the center of the state, around Orlando, and landed on a cattle ranch. How nice. But the cattle were thrilled to see you. Uh, actually, the ranch had belonged to uh, Governor Graham, who I had worked for years ago there. Big cattle. Uh, had a lot of cattle ranches around the center of the state. So it was kind of like a full circle experience at the time. I was sitting at home reading uh, this book, Hotel Scarface, by Robin Farzad, uh, which you are featured in fairly prominently as one of the characters in the book. It's a true story. I assume it's a true story in any event. Yes. And there was, like I said, if if I was an envious guy and I was younger, I would be envious of some of the aspects of the lifestyle you had that was rather hedonistic, of, you know, sitting there in the hotel and, Calling up the uh, the uh, the alcohol, you know. There's uh, there's three of us. We want four girls, but we want to interview a hell of a lot more. You just start, you know, sending them up. <laughs> that must have so, been strange days. You know, back th- back then, uh, even on US One, there was a big billboard. The big escort agency was called Moonflower, and it was pretty open. Uh, and I had found a lot of the guys I had met, uh, Mike, you know, I was the only guy that wasn't Cuban in my circle. Uh, you know, they had experience, uh, in their lifestyle, whether you know, them or their, their parents in Havana would go to whorehouses. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it was nothing for them to have a mistress or to call up an escort agency 
so there were some guys I had met that I didn't even realize were married because I would only see them five days a week at the club. Uh, and it turned out they were married and the kids and had a whole different life that just uh, had nothing to do with the life that they were living with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I said, when I was in uh, high school and college, I... You know, I can count on my hands how many times I had a uh, a real date with a woman, and before I knew it, uh, you know, it was on my speed dial. So, so then all of a sudden, you got them stacked like cordwood in the corner. Yeah, you know, they weren't. You know, I, I wish they were there for me and other reasons, but uh, you know, I, I, uh, it was definitely a rush for a guy like me. You know, uh, you know, I grew up on the. Uh, uh, the lower end of the middle class scale and uh, you know when I had gone I was on a full scholarship in Boston to school but I had never money never had any extra money to go out on dates or to, to spend I had probably about a $200 a month budget and uh, you know all of a sudden I'm making suitcases full of money well, you're making more uh, money than your parents uh, a lot more yeah a lot so you more. go home for Pesach right and uh, Pesach, and, and uh, you but you get to be the evil son. What mean ye by uh, this service? Yeah, well, another thing that was going on back then, my brother, who had gone, my old brother had gone to law school, and he was uh, a, a prosecutor for Janet Reno in the Miami State Attorney's Office. Oh no! So uh, you know we had the you know, these. Uh, Passover dinners and Thanksgiving were kind of epic. I'd show up with a new Rolex or a Porsche, and he would tell me how I was going to jail. And uh, we're really not that even close to this day. But, you know... Uh, now, did you really get to be with the, uh, the questions? Did you get to be the one that said, what mean ye by this service? And for a lot of years, I was the youngest, so I, I did read the, read the uh, questions uh, at Passover. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of, you know, I always thought it was kind of appropriate for me anyway. I was the one with, without the ability to inquire. Yeah. So it kind of fit me. And, uh, you know, I, you know, I'm examining what happened between my brother and I. I've been working on a memoir for a couple of years, uh, how we both grew up and went on two different, uh, tangents. Now, you and Al Capone's brother, you know, Al Capone's brother was in law enforcement? No, I didn't. I didn't yeah, Two Gun Hart. He used the last name Hart, dressed like a cowboy. And uh, well, <laughs> same thing with Whitey Bolger and his brother James, who was uh, head of the uh, the uh, Senate in uh, in Massachusetts. Uh, you know, we both had. You know, we grew up in Northern Jersey. Uh, my dad was in the music business. He worked for ASCAP, hmm. and he would go around and he would license restaurants and nightclubs, mm-hmm. anywhere there was a public performance of music. And as my dad would say, most of the guys in Jersey, last names ended in a vowel. So uh, we were regaled with stories about guys named Big Pussy, and uh, you know, a good friend of my father was a guy named Paul Skinny D'Amato, who owned the 500 Club in Atlantic City, where Sinatra always played. and. He later became his partner in the Cal Nebula Lounge. Mm-hmm. And I would see these guys kind of, through my father's eyes, as uh, rock stars. So when the time came for me to meet these kind of people on my own, 
I think I was already kind of uh, inoculated. Okay. Yeah, I was. I was inoculated. I mean, I was really intrigued by these type of guys, and uh, you know, I mean, uh, by 1978, after the big massacre in Broad Dayland at Dayland Mall, where some cocaine cowboys came in a war wagon and shot up the mall and. Uh, there were so many dead bodies in Dade County that the uh, the uh, mortuary that uh, was dealing with a lot of these bodies had to hire a refrigerated truck from Burger King to take the overflow of bodies. Well, why were they killing everybody down there? What was the what was, what was, what was, what was that? Uh, in the Burby, it was it was mainly over territory. Uh, there were certain people that. Uh, especially the, there was uh, uh, big schizophrenia between the Colombians and the Cubans and um, you know I mean there were some people that just wanted the business for themselves uh, there was a woman named Griselda Blanco mm -hmm. who was responsible for they say killing over 200 people uh, in the late 70s and 80s uh, in fact uh, she was known as the godmother of cocaine yeah familiar uh, yeah yeah, and years later, my brother was the one that prosecuted her at the state level in Miami. So how do you and your brother get along uh, during this time period, or how do you get along now? Uh, you know, it, it's, it's, we never had that normal relationship. There was a, always a sibling rivalry. Uh, back then when it became clear to my brother what I was doing, it kind of disgusted him. You know, we try to have and uh, try to do an intervention one time, and he, he wanted to take me to the uh, Dade County Morgue to see what I can get myself into. Uh, but I, you know, I honestly I never saw that side of the business. Uh, you know, I you know occasionally we hear about somebody when you're getting killed or uh, something, but you know, uh, I had worked with an organization that was supposedly brought in close to two and a half billion dollars worth of cocaine and no one got killed i mean these guys would write off uh the loss before they would go after somebody yeah why kill somebody when you make it out anyway yeah i mean you know why rock the boat so you know these two guys uh had a very successful organization they raced offshore power boats uh they you know one of the guys had a white tiger uh, he would say on a weekend, if nothing's going on in Miami, let's fly to Dallas for the Grand Prix, and we'd all get in a private jet or fly to Vegas for the fights and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I wouldn't even say I was a low man on the totem pole. I wasn't even on the totem pole uh, compared to these guys. And they liked me, you know. I mean, they liked me because I wasn't, you know, Spanish. I had a college degree. I was Jewish. I was a token. Uh so they liked having me around. And I guess they trusted you. That's you a know, good they trusted guess. me because, you know, I you know, I would have offers all the time from different organizations like, hey, you know, we like you. And because of Bernie, they would say whatever you want. You know, the expression was take it on the arm. You know, they would front me whatever I would want uh, to try and sell. But, you know, I mean... You know, I was happy if I had to make money just every couple of months to do something. To, sure. You know, um, you know, and that's you know that's how it kind of went. Uh, 
you know, I wound up actually doing uh, a lot of business out in L.A. I used to stay at the Chateau Marmont for about a month at a time. A uh, guy I had met in Atlantic City was one of the vice presidents for Caesars, and I won't mention his name. But he had flown me out to uh, First Beverly Hills Hotel and introduced me to a bunch of people. And before I knew it, you know, I was uh, I was out there a month at a time. In uh, in Miami, a quick, a quick quick side question. Uh, yeah. Ever hear of a guy named Dusty Peters? No. Okay. Just checking. It was uh, Howard's Connect. That, that's oh. for sure. <laughs> that's for sure. He was with Lansky. Okay. You know. You know. Uh, when I was when we first moved to Miami, uh, we had a friend that lived in the Seacoast Towers, which was right next to the building that Lansky lived on uh, on Miami Beach. And my dad would point him out, and uh, he'd be outside walking his dog, or we'd go to. Uh, Wolfie's, which was the deli on Lincoln Road. That's correct. And Bought out by Jerry's he, Deli, and they ruined it. Right. You know, you would see on one side of the room, you would see Lansky with a bunch of old altar cocklers. <laughs> on the other side, you know, there was Larry King, the radio personality. Right. Uh, and it was just that kind of hangout. Yep. And, you know, my dad would, you know, you know, in my house, uh, my dad would say we respected men that swung baseball bats, but we didn't mean Hank Greenberg or Sandy Koufax. Right. You know, they were like Meyer Lansky and uh, from Newark, a guy named Longies Wilman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, that was kind of the influence I had growing up also. Well, Dusty was uh, a cousin, I guess to me. My grandfather was my grandfather's cousin. And uh, my father always told me and my brother, he said, you ever get in trouble in Miami? You just say that name. And, of course, my brother, God bless him, goes to one of the tracks down there and uh, decided he wasn't going to pay. And uh, they took him downstairs and uh, said, you're going to pay. And he said, well, my cousin's Dusty Peters. And it was on the house. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it never hurt to know somebody down there. I had a... You know, I had a friend of mine who was with the uh, Italian mob up in New York. He was a capo who would come to the meetings, and we would go out. And technically, he wasn't allowed at the racetracks uh, because he was a convicted felon. And we would go to Gulfstream all the time. And we'd sit there for about six or seven races, and I would probably lose every race. Uh, and I'm looking at him, and he would laugh about it. And then a couple years later, he was indicted for fixing the races at Calder, which was a winter racetrack. And I said to him, like, you know, why didn't you give me some information? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> going to win, you know? Yeah, like, and, he, and he said basically, well, you know, like, you're a friend of mine, you're not a friend of ours kind of thing, like uh, from Goodfellas. Interesting group, uh, the track people. Interesting group. Um, yeah. There was a time where I was doing uh, outdoor concerts, promoting outdoor concerts, and, and uh, ended up doing a racetrack. And I had a guy in the uh, the night before the show in the uh, in the paddock area with a you know we're all equipped with uh, walkie talkies, and I'm having mm-hmm. dinner in the track. And all of a sudden, I'm hearing number seven, huh? Just number seven, <laughs> and. Uh, 
I put two and two together, and it, it took five bucks, and I put it on seven. Boom. <laughs> Boom. And then uh, that was going on all night uh, because that, that place is, you know, that was as dirty as it gets. Whatever oh, happened yeah, to uh, Big Nancy, the big blonde? Yeah. The smuggler known as Nancy, and you got a picture of her in here, courtesy of her. And she's really good looking. At least there's a picture of her in the book. Did you know her? Uh, no. Uh, too bad. She's gorgeous. <laughs> so what happened? How did you go from being, you know, a nice Jewish boy with a brother who's like to arrest him, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, stripping stu- stu- the uh, the girls and making an extra 24000 here, another 24000 there. Uh, you got these friends. Uh, what happened to that world? What happened to your life? Uh... This went on, you know, from, I'd say, about 78 to 89. Uh, to, I had one or two close calls where I was listed as an undyed co-conspirator. In 1989, I had been working with a guy up in Philadelphia, you know, a guy with a bent nose, and uh, he retired. And uh, then I had gotten into a car accident. Uh, in Fort Lauderdale, uh, I had let a friend drive my Mercedes, and we were at, wound up running into a garbage truck at about 40 miles an hour, oh. about 3 in the morning. And for about a year, I was getting put together in the hospital. Uh, my, I had lost a good part of my face. I was having skin grafts and everything else. And so for a year, I didn't do anything. I, I was hibernating. And at that point, you know, uh, Federal guidelines had changed where if you got well, if you got caught with a kilo in 1978, you could probably get probation on a first-time offense. Uh, by 1989, if you were caught, uh, you would have gotten 15 for possession, another 15 added on for trafficking. Oh, boy. Time added on the year. It would be like 45 years, and they'd ask you to do two-thirds. So I was running out of people I could really work with at that point. Most of the people I had known either retired or I hadn't seen them for years, so I didn't know if I could trust them anymore. And that's a problem. Uh, not, you know, uh, towards the very end, I mean, you know, I mean, in the beginning, it was all sunshine and roses. By the end, uh, there were so many people informing on everybody else uh, that it just came a different ballgame. And after I had gotten out of the hospital, I had tried to do one more thing with somebody new, and it didn't quite work out. And uh, uh, to put it in the words of the DEA agent who uh, wound up accosting me and my friend in New Orleans, he said, Owen, he goes, uh, we got your friend cold, uh, and we know you fit into this somehow. We don't know how you fit into this. Uh, but if you had made any money to this point, he goes, I'd retire, but he's going to be watching you from now on. And uh, that, was nice. that was about it. Yeah, that was about it. So, uh, you know. Uh, so he said, what can I do that borders on illegality and might be disreputable? And you became a literary agent. <laughs> well. <laughs> I'm, my apologies to literary agents because I write books and I have okay. literary agents. So I'm just teasing. Well, no, you know, I mean, I had always wanted to write. uh in fact, someone you may even have known, uh, when I was when I was first diagnosed with Crohn's, I spent a lot of time at home in high school. I was writing uh, 
short stories, uh, and I had given one to my mother who had given it to uh, someone, a writer named Charles Wilford, who was teaching down in Miami. He was teaching in Miami-Dade at the time. And Charlie liked my writing, and uh, he encouraged me to start writing. And, uh, you know, that led to a succession of good writing instructors along the way. And I eventually went for my MFA. Uh, and then years later, I uh, got involved in a certificate of publishing program at NYU and went to work for some agencies after that point. Now, I got to shift, shift gears here. Uh, one sure. of the things I, I read by you, and it had a picture of uh, Anthony Bourdain, where he looked like he's yep. on his way to his bar mitzvah. You know, I, mean, look, I mean, he looked really, really young in uh, yeah. in that photograph. Uh, one thing I want to say about about Anthony Bourdain, who I never met or interacted with, but the introduction, his opening line of his show where he goes to Hong Kong, I thought was incredibly significant in the change of consciousness in, in the CNN audience between when it went on the air and last year when I saw this episode. The opening line was of the show, seeing Hong Kong for the first time is like the first time you took acid. <laughs> Only Anthony. I mean, that I thought was just, well, what did he just say? <laughs> you know, he, when I had met Anthony, uh, I had uh, a friend of mine introduced uh, me to him, uh, I think was his dealer at the time, a guy named Stevie, I'd known from Studio 54. And we went to a restaurant down by, uh, NYU. It was called, uh, and the name escapes it, uh, One Fifth. And Anthony was working there at the time. And, uh, my legitimate business, uh, during the late 70s and 80s, I had a antiquarium book business. Mm. And I specialized in first edition mysteries, uh, crime books, and um, probably had a few Leslie Charteris that I would have bought from you. Yeah, I would have back then. And my my friend Stephen drew me to Anthony. He said, "Oh yeah, this guy's also big in the mystery books." And we start talking, and we found we both had a mutual love for uh, you know the Boston writer uh, George B. Higgins. And some other writers. And, uh, you know, before Anthony wrote Kitchen Confidential, he wrote two or three mystery books. Mm. And, you know, he was a pretty good writer. <clears throat> and that's how I got to know him at first. And I knew him for about 23 years. Uh, he was a nice guy. I mean, once when I was in the hospital at Mount Sinai, he showed up at the hospital when I had Crohn's Crohn's operation. Wow, that is and, really uh, significant. Do you realize that according to research... Uh, it is incredibly rare that a man will go visit another man in the hospital. And if he does, that is an incredible sign of friendship. Well, then I got a lot of friends. You, you, you do. Yeah. Yes, because I had it. Very, lot. very rare. Yeah, I didn't know. Yeah. <clears throat> Matt and I made a memorable visit to you in a hospital. Yes, you did. Yeah. I went still to his have his wallet I, and everything. I, yes, they did. They did that, too. But they brought, <laughs> Matt brought me a nice uh, a big chunk of uh, pepperoni sausage. Yeah. That's just what you need in the hospital. And, well, you and, did. And after I was in there for so long, give me something yeah. to eat. Please. And your spouse, Laquivant, gave us a memory we'll never forget. 
What was that? Well, I, I already I forgot remember, it. <laughs> I, I did remember Anthony trying yeah. to remove the oxygen tube from my neck, but... Uh... That was nice of him. Hey, we're going to take a 60-second break to uh, chop up this quarter block. We'll be right back with you. A True Crime Uncensored on OutlawRadioLive.com. program where I get to take a few seconds to tell people if you want to go to heaven you got to buy my books otherwise <laughs> burn in hell. Is, is that the ticket that's the ticket yeah okay. your ticket to heaven is buying all of Burl Bear's books, which you can... Well, what you can't you, afford... So, so you don't have to read them, you just have no, to... Oh, hell no. Yeah. You can have the great bookends of the 20th century. <laughs> Would that be uh, like uh, Mom Said Kill? Yeah, Mom Said Kill. Mom about... Said Kill is uh, is out now as an audio book for you illiterates uh, who enjoy listening to the program. Wow. You don't have to read it. You can sit back, relax, who, who, listen who, to who, it. Who did read it? Did you read it? or did I you... wrote it. I, I know you wrote it, it Burl. Stop it. I, I, got for, I got through the first couple of pages. <laughs> for a guy who can't read, that's pretty good, Bart. How about the, the counterfeit resurrection of Phil Champagne? Oh, the counterfeit resurrection of Phil Champagne. The pitch to Village Roadshow is on the 22nd. Ouch. Pray, keep your fingers crossed and your legs uncrossed and pray for that one because I could certainly use the money. And your current masterpiece, Pearl. Uh, Betrayal in Blue, the true story of the cocaine cops of the NYPD, Michael Dowd and Ken Urell, written uh, by, of course, me and uh, uh, Frank Gerardo Jr. and the real-life Ken Urell, known as the second most corrupt cop in the history of the NYPD, number one being Michael Dowd, number three being Michael Gordine, and number four, well, the, they're still fighting over that in the green room. That's correct. Uh, so anyway, buy all my books. All I have about 19 of them. Uh, don't buy them used. I don't make a cent. Buy them new, please. Audio book. When did you get up to 19? I think it's 19. I think it's 12. I think so. Uh, i got to go back and count them. I don't know. Some are in English. <laughs> Spanish and Hebrew. Spanish, Hebrew, yes, French. Uh, Japanese and Chinese. So how about that? Wow, I'm impressed. I'm impressed, too. I'll be more impressed with royalty checks after I sell this latest masterpiece. Uh, I'm, well, I think it'll be a, a number one bestseller. It certainly better be. Where do you know from this? Uh, <laughs> hey, you know, it's just, it's just hot air. It's hot air. It's live air, too. Uh, Owen Band is the man we have on the phone who's sitting there stunned, amazed, amused, aghast, and thunderstruck by this conversation, going, how did I get into this? He picked up the phone and called. Well, you can blame it all on Daniel Jennis. Okay. How did you meet Daniel? Were you in prison with him or something? No. uh, Actually, I read a couple of his pieces in Vice, uh, and then I looked him up on uh, Facebook. Yeah. And... uh, 
I saw a couple other articles I liked of his. And, you know, I was curious. You know, I, I don't know that many uh, Jewish criminals. and uh, Not I that he was a very successful uh, one, mind you. Not, not that he was. But uh, it was just something I had liked in his writing, and I wanted to get to meet him. Yeah, so he does, I, he does uh, write very him. well. He's a very good writer, and, uh, you know, he has a book coming out uh, pretty soon. Uh, memoir. You know what, if he hadn't gone to prison, he wouldn't have that book. Well, gave him something to write about. Yeah. And uh, if he never went to Spain, would, he would have liked the music. Yeah, that's right. Right. <laughs> so uh, it's just an accumulation of life experiences. Uh, that's how I got to where I am right now. Who knows, I would have been married with two kids practicing uh, real estate law down in Miami otherwise. Yeah. Uh, Instead, <laughs> you're working in New York as a literary agent and uh, talking to True Crime Uncensored on the radio. Now available on iTunes, Spotify. Spotify and Anchor just merged, by the way. Spotify bought out Anchor. They bought them, and I'm part of that. So people who... Uh, Many people listen to this program live, of course, and they're hearing you right now. Others listen to it at their leisure on iTunes or on Spotify or uh, any of the others, about 13, 14 platforms that carry uh, podcasts. Or their uh, leisure or their leisure. Yeah, either one. Or uh, Eliza is listening. Uh, she can do a little while she's listening. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Boom, boom. Say good night, Gracie. Good night, Gracie. We're not done with the show yet. We're just screwing around here. Yeah. Well, I have a question. Oh, you have a question for Owen Band? Yes. We we sure. we, we mentioned uh, Meyer Lansky earlier in the broadcast. I was wondering if any of the old-time uh, gangsters had anything to do with the uh, trafficking we're discussing. Well, um... You know, I I can't say anything about the old time gangsters, but uh, I knew about a lot of the newer ones uh, were involved. And you know, in a, I remember once uh, I had I ran into Joe Pistone, Donnie Brasco, uh, and Joe was in Fort Lauderdale uh, in the eighties, and I had talked to him about, did you guys ever come down to Miami? And he says, well, we tried to avoid Miami because there's just too many cowboys down there. Uh, but there were, you know, I mean, you know, there was organized crime and there were people, you know, coming down, getting cocaine uh, from the five families in New York and uh, I know Scarfo's gang in uh, Philadelphia. Uh, but as far as the old-timers, uh, you know, most of those guys would probably just put a tax on the people selling in their area and that's as far as right. it would go. It's a little bit out of their area of expertise. Well, you know, I had a lo I had some interest in Atlantic City at the, in the uh, uh, early 80s and at one point, I guess, I was getting a little bit too big and I was approached and said, well, if you want to continue working in the casinos and the nightclubs in Atlantic City, I have to pay a street tax. Um uh, and I decided, well, I don't really want to do that all that much. And I just basically stopped uh, going going there. But, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, there was no way around it. Uh, they were going to make money off of it somehow. They, they did, in fact. Uh, one of the guys I had worked for, uh, his mother was kidnapped by some guys out of New York. And they... 
my friend paid a million dollars to get his mother back uh, just as a cost of doing business. And I remember hearing about it later from some of the Italian guys I knew, and they laughed about it. They said, look, any time we need money, we just got to fly to Miami and grab Willie's mother again. <laughs> you know, it's a tragic but, but true. E.W. Count wrote an Edgar Award-winning book on uh, true stories from the NYPD. And one whole section was on kidnapping and gangs kidnapping members of other gangs and holding them for ransom. Well, you think one criminal gang kidnapping someone from another criminal gang, why do the cops give it? But it's, the crime is the crime is the crime. You prosecute crimes, not the individuals, and the crime is kidnapping. So they try to rescue the one gang member from the other gang being held for ransom. It's very peculiar stuff. But that goes on a lot in New York City. What's your point? Yeah, I mean, you, know, you just can't report it to anybody. So uh, it's kind of the idea that you're, you know, it's untaxed, it's unrecognizable money. So what do you do? Uh, well, that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> you were making, as you said, uh, suitcases full of cash. Uh, other than your Porsche and your Rolex, what did you do with the money? Well, I had a nice nest snake. I invested some property in uh, some houses in South Florida. Uh, I was basically was an unsophisticated investor. Uh, and when the time came and I was in that car accident for a year, uh, I had taken delivery of some product for the accident. And when I got out of the hospital, the product has disappeared. Um, how amazing. And, yeah, amazing. And uh, I had a couple of Colombian guys that I would show up at the hospital and say, hey, you know, we like you, uh, but, you know, where's our $800,000? Uh, and, you know, I had a pretty much liquidated everything back hmm. then. Plus you had the medical bills. Oh, uh, yeah, the medical bills, but... Uh, you know, it was, you know, it pretty much wiped out whatever savings I had back then. Uh, but I was, you know, I mean, you know, these, and I'm going to say these guys did like me. I mean, we were friendly, we hung out, we went to clubs, but it was like, you know, yes, this you know is God bless you, you know, God bless you, uh, but where's our money? Yeah. Uh, so, did you know, they get I their money? Was, they got their money. So I they, mean, were, they were happy then. They were happy. They were happy. Yeah, you know, I had a question I was going to bring up a, a little while ago. When when a guy is starting to go bad, how do you know? What are the telltale signs? Uh, yeah, it, it goes scandalous you know, all of a sudden. Well, you know, I always had my radar up, and I was always on the cautious side. Uh, if somebody starts acting differently, saying things differently, trying to lead you into things uh, that you normally wouldn't... Uh, you know, get involved in or talk about, you know, like, you know, back then, luckily, they weren't cell phones. You had a beeper page or you'd go to, you know, a phone somewhere. Uh, but it, it, it was just kind of instinct that you'd have to feel, you know, something just didn't smell right. Uh, when that last thing happened in New Orleans, uh, I didn't really trust the guy I was working with. So I kept all my plans secret, uh, and it was a good thing I did because 
had the right instinct about him. So when he was, so when the arrest happened in New Orleans, uh, I couldn't have been, I wasn't tied to anything. Uh, I mean, if I would have done one thing wrong, if I would have even taken, driven in the same car from the airport into New Orleans, uh, I would have been somehow involved in the operation or, you know, and, uh, I, I was just smart about it, you know? Uh, I was never, I was, I was never greedy. I have friends that would, you know, fly to Atlanta, you know, order a hooker, start talking to a hooker, meet the hooker's uh, pimp, and try to, you know, start doing business with him. I, I never needed that. I just, you know, I needed enough to know that if the clones got worse, you know, I've had over 70 hospitalizations in my life and eight major surgeries, uh, that I could provide for myself, you know? I mean, I looked at it back then that, if I looked for a legitimate job and I have to go and say either, A, hey, I have Crohn's, I may miss three months of work this year, uh, it just wasn't going to happen for me. So uh, that was also part of my motivation doing what I was doing. Okay, listen, if our listeners want to be supportive of your career, do you have anything out here that they can buy or articles they can read or anything they can do to help make you rich? Well, uh, nothing that's going to make me rich. I write for. <laughs> You're uh, right. The, that's right. I forgot. You know, I write for Mystery Scene Magazine. I write for The Forward. I write for Miami Times, some other publications. Uh, I'm currently working on a memoir. I'm, in fact, um, uh, taking a writing course with a brilliant writer and instructor, Kathy uh, Cordo, at Sarah Lawrence uh, this semester, so I can try and finish my memoir, which I've been toying with for about the last ten years. And uh, the uh, working title is uh, Brother Law and the Cocaine Kid, mm. which hopefully I'll get done by the end of the year. Excellent. And we have to come back I'll, and uh, talk about it. Then. Oh, definitely. So hopefully I'll make enough. Hopefully I'll mention enough names where I can sell it, <laughs> get, a big, get a big book advance, and move to Thailand. That's right. So, uh, Thailand. <laughs> what the hell are you gonna do there? Uh. Avoid paying taxes. Thank you. Good <laughs> Thank you. Uh, That's me in the, in the seat behind you. On the and young boys that resemble females. <laughs> we got plenty of those right here in Los Angeles. <laughs> hey, Owen Band, thank you very much. Great guest. Thank Love the show. And, of course, anytime you want to interview me for Mystery Scene, give me a call. <laughs> Thanks, Berlin. Thank you, Howard. My pleasure. You're welcome. And Marco. We'll have you back again. You were great. Well, Burl, yeah. what would be next? Gee, let me think for a moment. Oh, I thought. Magic Bat Allen and the Demons of Decadence live at the Lightning Lounge. 